If you will stand with me as we read Romans 8 this morning, verse 18 through 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longings, longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart, hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Father, we thank you for the work that you have started in our lives, that you're continuing to do. I pray, Father, that we would, with expectation, look to our great hope, our majestic God who is making a way for us to be with him. We thank you, Lord, for the love you've shown us, the mercy and grace that we've received. And just pray this morning that we would understand your word, that we would be able to comprehend the majesty of God, the glory that is going to be revealed. Father, that we would leave with a eager expectation and hope waiting patiently, Lord, on you. We thank you, Father, for this, and we trust, Lord, that you will be with us this morning. Open our eyes and our hearts to hear your word. Help us, Lord, to have clarity and understanding, Lord. I need you so much, and this morning I just pray that you would help me to be faithful as I teach your word, Lord, that it would be For your glory and your honor, in Jesus' name, amen. I remember when I was probably eight or nine, in our family we have a tradition, or we had a tradition, everyone's past this age now, so 
no longer tradition. <laughs> uh, when we turned 10, we could pick where we wanted to go eat dinner for our birthday. And back in those days, money wasn't everywhere. Uh, God's blessing was there, but it wasn't an overabundance. And um, so we got to pick. And as, I can't remember what Abigail picked. She was the firstborn. It was probably not as good as what I picked. Because I still remember uh, what I picked, and I still regret the fact that my brothers didn't gain such high taste at a young age. Because <laughs> they always wanted to go to the, the Golden Corral. But I remember at that age, I was always looking forward to my 10th birthday because I knew that I would get to pick where we went to eat. And so I picked a, uh, I think it was Tony Roma's, wasn't it? A barbie, it's a... Do they have ribs? That's why I picked it. So, <laughs> uh, back then, Tony Romas was really good. I don't know if they're any good anymore. But, uh, so, but the expectation going there was, like, these are going to be such really, really good ribs. And, um, but all that to say, I was eagerly waiting for the glorious ribs that were going to be eaten that day. Because at that time, I think they even had, like, you just told them when you were ready for more, and they would keep bringing you more. So, as a 10-year-old boy, uh, you can imagine, I was ready to be uh, gluttonous. (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't remember if they were good or not, but the expectation was definitely uh, high. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. Um, because we've just seen that we've been adopted as sons. We've been brought into the family of God, right, last week. And that is something that we shouldn't take lightly. We're not only sons of God, we're co-inheritors with Christ. So we have all that has been promised to Christ has been promised to us. And, and it's such a, a blessing to think, I said this last week, so often in the world we live in, people argue over an inheritance. They fight over an inheritance, but Christ is freely giving. He gave His life so that we could inherit with Him. And I I can't think of a, a greater truth today for the church to think that we have an inheritance with Christ. And so... At the end of verse 17, I have to turn back there. Well, I, I wanted to kind of give us 16, read 16 to 17 again from last week. It says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If, and there's a condition here, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. You see that? That's a really big if. That doesn't mean, and I said this last week, that doesn't mean we go out and seek to be persecuted on purpose. Like, we don't go out with signs, God hates you, or, yes, there's people that go to campuses with similar signage. They're not seeking really, to make disciples. They're just trying to tell the, people, the world that they're sinners and that God, they, there's no hope to their message. And 
So those people think that they're doing great because everyone hates them. Oh, we're suffering for the Lord. And I've met some of these people, and they, they love the hate because they associate suffering of any kind, even for wrong, in a wrong way, as suffering for Christ. And it's not. If, if we're going out purposely seeking to suffer, it's similar to uh, you hear stories about monks, even up to today, who do hunger strikes. Now, we're not going to eat for a certain amount of time, or, or monasteries that don't talk at all, or um, people who, uh, monks who um, will sleep on a certain type of bed because it's like a bed of nails, or or people who will beat themselves um, with whips. All this is so that they can suffer for Christ. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about suffering for Christ. Like, we are living out the kingdom. We are spreading the good news of the gospel, and we suffer for it, just as Christ suffered. Christ wasn't going around trying to find a hard bed to lie on. Christ wasn't needing to beat Himself. Why? Because the world hated Him because He was speaking the truth. And that should be the case with us. Some, sometimes, I mean, in our country, we don't suffer so much from that yet. It's coming. It, if, if it's not already here. Um, I was just seeing so much in the news now. If you take a stand... You will suffer. If, if you are going to stand for truth, you will suffer. It's, it's inevitable. You go to college, you're going to suffer. Because your biology teacher is going to tell you, you have to believe this. You have to say this. And you have to de- determine, do I really want an A in that class or would I rather be honest? to what the Bible says, and take a C because of that. Or, I mean, it's not just science classes. English classes. Are you going to use the new pronouns? Are you going to do this? What, what as Christians, we have to make, take a stand, and when we take stands because of the hope that we have, we will suffer. So if we are avoiding suffering, that's the other side of it. If we're consciously avoiding conversations or avoiding people that we know want to cause us to suffer, that's another problem. Not that we should try to stand somewhere and hope that somebody comes against us, but we should also not be fleeing from opportunities to suffer. And to realize uh, from last week's sermon, I felt like was the ending of that sermon was so helpful for me. God brings suffering in our life so that we cry out to Him. So that we become men and women of prayer. And so when we are suffering, it draws us closer to Him. It makes us hunger and thirst for Him. And so Paul has just said this. And now he's going to explain why suffering, this suffering is not a, a huge issue for believers. And he, he starts in verse 18. And in today's message, 
is the majestic marveling. That's let I know it's not a great message, but <laughs> title, but the majestic marveling. And that what we see in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the, suffering, the sufferings of this present time. So he's talking about, he's talking to them about his personal situation. What I'm suffering right now, in light of, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the whole part of this section. This is what he's talking about from 18 to 25. Because this word glory is also the same word we see at the end of verse 30, glorified. And we see glory also, the word glory again used um, throughout this passage. But it's, it's like a sandwich, for a lack of a better word. So, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this glory is majesty, the majesty of God. And that's why I'm using majestic marveling. Because this glory is, of, if you, if you think about it, the weight of this glory is so much more marvelous than anything that we can imagine. That's why it's so much more worth. The, the value of that glory is so great that our suffering is light by comparison. Does that make sense? And that, that's what, when he's saying the, the word glory here gives us this picture of a heavy, heavy weight. And so imagine you have a, a scale, an old style scale where you have a weight on both sides. God, the glory that's going to be revealed is down here, and we put our suffering on here, and it doesn't even move it by comparison. Because it is so much greater than any suffering that we'll endure in our lives. So, that, that glory, the majesty of God that is going to be revealed in the end is worth it, worth the suffering. The suffering that we suffer with Christ is worth it. If we think about it, when Christ was going to the cross, what, what did Christ say to Him? It was worth it because He saw the hope. He saw the future and He knew what the value of His suffering was going to bring. And that's how, as believers, if we are not looking to eternal hope, then we will be, sadly, go astray eventually. Because suffering is difficult. And in this life it seems so real and like, how can this hope be that much better? How can this glory that we're going to see be so much better than the suffering that I'm going through right now? But it is. And when we consider that, it should 
give us greater hope that, you know what, I'm suffering right now for Christ. I'm suffering because I'm trusting God in this way. But in the end, I have this glory. I have an inheritance with Christ. And I will stand before Him. And so Paul, Paul makes this statement. He's, he's talking about suffering and how it, it is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's coming. And then he, he goes into kind of an explanation. So he says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Us. Right? The adopted sons of God. And so, he's taking a picture. Look, even the creation is eagerly awaiting this glory. That's what he's saying. I hope you see this. Because what? The creation was subjected. Don't we see that there? For the creation was subjected in verse 20 to futility, not willingly, but because, because of him who subjected it. And I'll I'll stop there for a moment. Him, who's Him? God. He's not talking about us. We weren't the ones that subjected it. Our decision affected the creation, though. And I want us to see that if you'll turn really quick to Genesis chapter 3. Because the world we live in, the created order that we experience every day, is not perfect. And we see that a curse has been placed on it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your lives. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So we see a picture here It seems that thorns and thistles did not exist before the fall. What what do thorns and thistles do? They protect the fruit of the plant from others. I like to think that mosquitoes didn't invent... I can't figure out how they were good before the fall. I mean... What did they do before? Were they like bees? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know a lot of God's creation. I don't know what their purpose must have been before the fall. Because it seems like how would they have had any worth? But <laughs> that's, that's beside the point. That's not, not the point. But we see also in the Old Testament, so here we see the curse. This is clear. The, the earth... The created order, 
animals, everything was cursed because of man's sin. Why? Because God had commanded man to be the ruler of this earth, to have dominion over all of creation. And when, just like when a tyrant rules a country and all his subjects suffer, it's the same for us as believers. Or it was the same for Adam. They were his subjects. And because of his sin, all of creation was cursed and suffered because of that. But we also see in Isaiah 11, if you'll turn there, we see a move towards what we see here in Romans chapter 8. A hope, a future hope. Verse eleven, verse six. So, chapter 11, Isaiah eleven, verse six is talking about the coming Messiah, what the world will look like, and starting in verse five, he says, "Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his wrist, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard." will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you imagine, mothers, your nursing child playing around a cobra's nest? Maybe fathers too. <laughs> or can you imagine seeing out in a field cows and lions playing together and it not looking like one's about to die? That's the amazing thing. There's a really good documentary that Megan and I have watched by a, a Christian biologist. And in that he points out how the creation Suffer and suffers and groans like this because this is the picture of Eden. The picture we see in Isaiah 11 is what Eden was like before the fall. Apparently, lions used to eat grass. I don't know why they needed such sharp teeth, but... <laughs> But they ate grass. And so, all of what God is doing from the beginning, from the fall to now, has been to relieve creation and 
us most specifically from this body that we have. To relieve us. And so the creation is anxiously longing. It's eagerly waiting. And this word that's translated wait is throughout this section. It's from verse 19 to verse 25. It's mentioned three times. Or four times, actually. Sorry. Four times. This idea of waiting, but in a specific way. It's not like, oh, I guess I'll wait because I have to. That's not. It's eagerly waiting. It's eagerly looking. I see glory. I know what's coming. And so I'm going to wait eagerly. And that's what we should be doing. How often do we think about heaven? How often do we think about heaven in that way that, I mean, the older you get, probably the more you think about heaven, right? Because it's closer. Every year we live, we're one year closer to time, eternity with Him. But are we eagerly waiting for the coming of Christ? Are we looking eagerly to His return? I mean, we can listen to so, just listen to so many songs that are sung. And there's so few that take and talk about heaven. There's one artist that I really like because he, oh, I can't think of a single album that he's put out that doesn't speak of heaven. At least, almost all his albums have at least two or three songs about heaven. And he's a little bit more contemporary. But the songs that he sang, I remember when Brother Hamilton passed away, listening to some of those songs, and it made me want to be there too. Just that thought of what heaven is like. And maybe we need to find more songs that will awaken our hunger, our eagerness for heaven, Looking forward because if we're looking to that great and glorious King and the majesty that He has, the sufferings of this life will fade in comparison. Does that mean, is Paul telling the church in Rome, you know what, your suffering is not a big deal. It's not a big deal at all. It's just, no, that's not what Paul's saying. But Paul's saying is, I have suffered I know what it means to suffer, and the reason I can suffer joyfully and with hope is because I know what's coming. So the suffering that I, I have right now has no, nothing by comparison to that. And so he's pointing, p- painting a picture of how even the creation is suffering, but it's anxiously Longing, it's interesting that it kind of gives creation this idea of personality. The world wants to call her Mother Nature. But the creation is waiting, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. What? At at the end. That's That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the end time, the moment that the world ends as we know it. 
Because creation was subjected, verse 13. But it wasn't just subjected without a reason. So, our waiting must be... So, we see the, the grand picture, the glory of God. That, that's the point of this message, the, the magnificence, the majesty that is coming. And how are we to wait for that? Well, we have to wait, one. But we need to wait eagerly and in hope. That is the key. If we are not hoping, we won't wait eagerly. There's no way that you're going to wait eagerly, patiently, if you are not hoping in truth. Hoping that what God's Word said is true. And we see that right here at the end of verse 20. So he's the creation for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see that? The creation is going to be set free from the corruption. The new heavens and new earth. I, I don't know what that looks like. But I have a feeling that Isaiah 11 is going to be a picture of that. right? Because we know Christ has come. That prophecy was about Christ. But that fulfillment has not been seen yet. Because I have never been to a zoo and seen cows and lions together. And I don't think... I doubt that a zoo would ever put a domesticated lion with a domesticated cow and it end up good for the cow. Because eventually that, that lion is going to realize, hmm, you smell like that steak they give me every morning. <laughs> and you're a lot bigger than that steak. It's interesting, there's one zoo in, in Rochester, New York that Megan's parent, grandparents take us to, and they put the meat inside of a painted, it looks like a, a, a zebra carcass, so that the lions will associate it with eating a live animal. It's weird. It's strange. But we even see that in the zoo. Like they realize that the lion will prefer to eat what they think is food from a, a, a dead animal. So, anyways, side note. <coughs> so we, we need to be, it's in hope that that's why it's eagerly waiting. It's waiting eagerly because it has hope that it too, when the sons are revealed, the sons of God are revealed and they are receive that glory that they that the creation itself will be released from the curse that has been placed upon it in Adam. In verse 22, he says, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly 
for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So he's, do we see how he's doing this? He's, he's showed us an example. The creation is waiting, but that's not the end. The creation is groaning and suffering the pains of childbirth. And that really takes us to Revelation. We see that, that imagery in Revelation. And that's not it. We also, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's that? The down payment, the guarantee. Right? If the Spirit is in us, we we see that in the first part of chapter 8. Right? We see, you know, if we're walking in the Spirit, if we have the mind of the Spirit, if the Spirit is in us, we are... It's the Spirit in us that cries out, Abba, Father. The whole creation groans, and we do too. And We're not groaning because, oh me, oh my. Oh, today's going to be a terrible day. I know it's sunny, but I have to go out to the car no, that, it's not that kind of groaning. It's a, it's a groaning of expectation that hope is coming. Why? Because the groaning within ourselves is a eager waiting for our adoption as sons. Wait, I'm, I'm confused. I thought we were adopted. Isn't that what Paul said earlier? What does he talk? There's that idea of Yes, we are adopted. We are sons of God. But with our adoption comes what else? And this is something that I think the church has forgotten. The redemption of our bodies. When we are raised again, we're going to have resurrection bodies. God does not separate us physically and spiritually in the new heavens and the new earth. Have you ever thought about that? As human beings, God created us to be embodied. Not to just be spirits that go up and... And I think that's why healing is so important. And I think this is the reason why many many churches don't realize that they're half Gnostic. I don't know if you know... You know what I'm saying? They, They act like the spirit... Gnostics don't believe that the body and the physical material realm matter. And so, I think oftentimes we forget when we're praying for our healing, we're praying because God care, we, our bodies are interconnected with our spirits. Our physical well-being is intimately connected to our spiritual well-being. I mean, how many times do you hear of people who are suffering physically and it leads them to walk away from Christ. Or, vice versa, they are suffering and they see God's power and they trust Him. I know this is kind of something you may not have thought about, but so often we, we, we act like, well, God just cares about our physical well-being, or our, our spiritual well-being. Oftentimes that's how it's taught. And it's like, no, if He didn't care about our physical well-being, why do we have a redemption of our 
physical bodies. And that's why I believe that God heals today. Because, and this is a complete side note, and it's not a part of the message necessarily. I just see this here, and I think there's a reason for healing. The healing is a demonstration of what's coming. Are we healed back to our 19-year-old selves? No. (laughs) I don't know anyone in here that has had uh, their their youth renewed in that kind of way. That doesn't mean that God can't, doesn't, can't give us strength and vitality at an older age, but I've never heard of somebody going back and saying, wow, what happened to you? Your face looks like you're 20 again. Has any, any of you all had that happen? No, maybe the ones that aren't 20 yet. Um, <laughs> but you don't see that happening. And, I mean, look at the world around us. We're, we're constantly looking for this, the fountain of youth. Because we want to return to that strength. Guess what? In heaven, it's going to be the best there ever has been. Physically speaking, we are going to have resurrection, whole, complete bodies with no defect, no sickness, nothing of the sort. I mean, that should give us hope. We should also, like the creation, be eagerly awaiting. Why? Because the corruption that our body is, suffers from is because of the curse of sin. That's why we still die. Because that will see its end completely in the new heaven and the new earth. So we wait eagerly. And how do we wait? With hope. Because we can't have eager waiting without hope. And so in verse 24, he really digs into hope. For in hope we have been saved. How many of you have not been saved by hope? Okay, good. I was concerned you weren't listening. Now I know you were. I was trying to trick you. (laughs) No, we have been saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what? For who hopes for what he already sees? I want to give another picture. Just like I was waiting for that, that ribeye, or the, the barbecue ribs, sorry. Once I saw the barbecue ribs, I wasn't waiting anymore. I wasn't hoping in the ribs. I was like, they're here. I'm going to enjoy them, right? There wasn't hope. Or, it's the same, my daughter, who is about to turn four, is soup, has been excited for months about her birthday. So, not every morning, but generally every morning, is the birthday party today? Because she doesn't understand weeks and months and stuff like that yet. But she's constantly thinking about her birthday. When's it going to come? And when that birthday day comes, it won't be hoping anymore because... The cake will be there. The gifts will be there. The people will be there. Everything that she's been hoping for will be there. So, I, I believe if, if we think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
We don't need hope in heaven. Why? Because we're there. We're experiencing everything that God has promised when we're in heaven. So when we, that's what he's trying, he's painting a picture. We don't have to see something to hope in it. And the world around us says, unless you can absolutely prove it to me, I'm not going to believe it. You know, you know what they're saying? You need to show me a picture. You need to give me hard evidence. And there is no way, as believers, I'm not saying that we shouldn't reason with people, that we can't have, that we don't have reasons for our hope. We do. We have reasons. We, we have faith based on God's Word, on what God has revealed in creation. That's not what I'm saying. But our hope eventually has to be in something we cannot see. And we've never seen. Because we're hoping in a new creation where lions will be sleeping with cows. The lambs and all the animals will be enjoying one another without any fear that one's going to eat the other one. The utopia that everyone is looking for will finally be revealed. It will be far greater than anyone in the world has ever thought because what God does is so much more glorious than anything we could think of. Verse 25, he says, But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So when we wait eagerly, this glorious hope, this majestic hope that is coming, this promise that we're waiting for, we're waiting for it in hope and perseverance, patience. We're, we're not giving up because it's difficult. The suffering comes, but we have hope, so we wait patiently, but eagerly because we're hoping we see a glorious truth that is coming. So how do we, how is it possible for us to do this? How is it possible for us to wait in hope and wait in perseverance? Well, we have help. And that's what we see in verses 26 through 30. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So when that suffering comes and you've lost sight of the hope, you feel like you want to give up. The patience is gone. The Spirit is here. That's why I believe speaking in tongues is so important. Praying in tongues. Because we don't know what God has in store. And suffering is not a sign that God is not with you. Actually, it's probably a good sign that God is working on you. Right? I remember when we lived in Guatemala and I got shot, I would tell people, 
This was a sign we were supposed to stay, and everybody's like, you're nuts. Not everybody, but a lot of people were like, that, that doesn't calculate in my mind. <laughs> but for us, we believe, believe that that was a sign that we were supposed to stay. And, yeah, it wasn't easy. There were times that I did not want to drive at night. And I had to overcome that fear. I don't have that problem here because people here typically don't go around waving around nine millimeters at night in road rage incidents yet. Maybe in the wrong areas of town. But we need the Spirit to help us as we pray. We need that so we maintain our hope. It's so easy in the depths of a trial to give up. To say, you know what? I've been waiting for so long and nothing seems to be happening. That's when we need the Spirit to remind us. Have hope. This suffering is light in comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed. The hope that I have in Christ should be so much more glorious. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect in trials because I like to get up, give up too. It's our nature. But when we are living by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, and praying by the Spirit, He helps our weakness. You see that? He helps our weakness. When that hope is waning, waning, not waning, When that hope is waning and we just want to give up, He helps us, encourages us, strengthens us. When when we don't want to keep fighting because our perseverance is at its end, He helps our weakness. Verse 27, So first He helps us in prayer. The Spirit helps us. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See that? I'm not sure how I understand this. If he's talking specifically about Christ, because if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 25 says, well, start in verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Christ, the priest forever. Therefore, 
He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we see that Christ is making intercession for us. I'm not certain, and I have to be honest, I'm not certain. I, I almost believe that in verse 27 that's what he's talking about. He's, he's not just saying the Spirit is interceding for us. We intercede by the Spirit. But also the Son, Christ, is interceding for us. And we see that even further down here in verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So, whether the word He is referring back to Spirit or Christ, I tend to believe He's talking about Christ because He says, He who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So it seems like he wouldn't be talking about the mind of the Spirit. What mind of the Spirit? Everything he said in Romans chapter 8. What's the mind of the Spirit? For the, the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 6. Um, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So a mind set on the Spirit, if He dwells in us, then we belong to, to Him. So, I believe He's talking about Christ here, that He searches our hearts and He intercedes for the saints. Who are the saints? Us. Not the ones that have been confirmed by the Catholic Church. Some of them probably are. But you don't have to have people pray to you for healing and have proof of that to be a saint. That's how you become a saint in the Catholic Church. You are a saint because Christ sanctified us. When we are born again, we are sanctified. Our lives are lived out. It's a manifestation of of the work of sanctification that He's done already. We aren't becoming more and more holy. God is whittling us down so that He can come through fully. Because He sets us apart. That's, it's been a message a while back, but I think it's important to remember. It's important to see here that he prays for intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How many times, let me ask you this, how many times have you prayed something and God answered in the way you didn't like, but now you're thankful he did? Can you think of a moment like that? I'm not saying that there aren't times when we still don't see the full picture. But oftentimes, and that's what verse 28 is getting at, if we, if we look at verse 28. And, that, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. 
to those who love God. We love this verse, don't we? I'm not saying, this is a little bit sarcastic, okay? (laughs) We love to quote this verse just like that. You know, you know, somebody's going off to do something and God works all things together for the good. We take this verse out of context all the time to say, you know, that's a good thing you're doing, so God must be behind it. Right? We assume that it's good. We assume that the word good here means nothing difficult. Right? But Paul has put this verse in the middle of a verse about suffering. Right? So what Paul is saying is God causes all things, suffering included, to be for the good of those who love Him. Who are called according to His purpose. So, God prays. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son is the the Spirit and the Son are interceding for us. And two, God works things out in our life. That's that's the idea of the word cause. He he brings about the events of our life for a purpose that we do not know. But it's for our good if we love him. That's the key. If we love him, if we do not love God, then it is not for our good. If we're lost and hopeless, then it's not for our good, unless it is for God to bring us to Himself. I mean, many of us have been brought to our lowest point before God was able to get a hold of us. Before we realized how desperately we needed Him. So essentially, it was for our good. But all things, suffering, trials, temptations, everything in our lives up to this point, if we are believers, and even if we're not and we're being drawn to Christ, is for our good. I know it's hard to look back, especially some people's situations, um, to think, man, how does that, how's that brought about my good? But the thing is, God has a bird's eye view. He, he's not looking at it as we, we're looking at the situations as they are, black and white. We don't see the whole story. But in the end, we will. God is bringing about His will in our lives for our good and His glory. Right? What... What is our greatest good? I think that's a question we should ask in light of this verse. What is our greatest good? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's a statement that many people may or may not know. But that's the greatest good. When we enjoy God, guess what? That's what heaven's going to be about. That's the greatest good. That's why heaven is such a beautiful place that we should be eagerly awaiting, hoping and persevering for. That doesn't mean that we're useless here, that we're not serving the kingdom here, but our hope is in heaven. Because 
Our greatest good is there. Our greatest joy is there. So, if we've been called according to His purpose and we love God, He is our greatest good. He's he's bringing the circumstances and the situations of our life for the purpose of drawing us to Him and bringing us to the place where we are able to draw others to Him. Verse 29, we see this picture. And those whom He foreknew. This word foreknew is a picture of, of predecided, predetermined. Or what's the other word? Anybody remember the other word? Predestined. That's the one we always hear. A lot of people, they hear that word and they're like, uh, I'm done with this conversation. But God did. He chose us before we had anything to offer. Before we were even a thought. Before the foundations of the world, He foreknew us. He predestined us. He's pretty much saying the same thing. And this idea of foreknowing, just think about this. In the Old Testament, it was always a relation, a relational knowing. To know someone. It wasn't, it wasn't just a, a you know, casual, oh yeah, I know that person. Oh, we're going to be Facebook friends now. Oh no, we're going to block them now because I didn't realize that they were like that. Right? <laughs> or I'm just going to stop following them and act like I'm still friends even though I don't want to know them. But God wants to have that relationship with us and He's determined before time, He's predestined, as the second part of that verse says, to know us intimately as His own. He knows all things. If you think about Abraham, he says, he tells Abraham, I have chosen you because I know that you will do this. Abraham had nothing in himself to offer, but God had determined that that the circumstance of his life would direct Abraham in such a way that God would choose him, direct him, and that Abraham would fulfill that. But there's some who want to say, well, you know, God, God looked forward in time and He saw that we were going to be good and then He chose us. No. That still comes back to us as being the prime mover of our salvation. It's not the case. We are nothing. It is only through Christ that we are saved. There, there's nothing in us that makes God think, hmm, you're a good choice. And I know that may be offensive to you, but it's not. It shouldn't be offensive. If it is, I'm sorry, it's the truth. He also, so He foreknew us, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. That, that is what is happening. We are to be conformed to His image of the Son. Why? Why do you think 
We are to be conformed to the image of His Son. He's the new creation. Right? He's the perfect Adam. See, the creation The creation is looking to the Eden that it used to be. And we're being brought into the image of the Son, the perfect image of God. The perfect... I mean, the express image of God. That's what he talks about in Hebrews chapter 1. Christ is the express image of God. The new Adam. And so... We are being conformed to that image and all the events of our lives are being worked together for that purpose and for our good. And one day we will see Him as He is and be like Him. That's what it says. I know I'm not giving the exact quote of that verse, but you can look it up. There are constantly pictures in in the Bible of this idea that we are going to be like Christ, that we will look like Christ, that when we see Him in His glory, we will be glorified. So we are being conformed to this image so that He will be the firstborn among many brethren. I kind of I quoted this uh, last week, but Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. He's not just... He's no longer the only begotten Son, in a sense. Let me explain. Because now we are sons and daughters. The Father now has many sons and daughters because the only begotten Son died for us and brought us in to His kingdom. And those whom He predestined, that should be us, I pray, Pray you're believing that this morning. He also called. Called to do what? According to His purpose. Called according to His purpose. And whom He called, those whom He called, He also justified. So if you're predestined, you're called for His purpose, what are you? Justified. I hope we see that. Paul is really taking uh, Romans chapter 5 and just putting it in a big bundle here, I feel like. I'm going to go back and read Romans 5 and come back and read this another time. Really, you see all of Paul's argument coming together from the whole book almost up to this point. And whom he justified... He also glorified. Do we see the sandwich now? We're, we're looking to the glory. And now it's saying we're glorified. Do you, do you see that? That's past tense. But what does he mean? Glorified. This is a kind of already but not yet. Right? Picture that we see. That glory is coming. It's going to overtake us. It's going to be majestic. We're going to marvel at that majesty. The majesty of a, of a God who we cannot even fathom in our minds. The majesty of God. The glory of God that is ours. 
It is so magnificent. And in a sense, right now, we are glorified. We are experiencing the glory of God in our lives. In our physical bodies, I believe, we should be experiencing His healing, His power. And then in the future, when we see Him, we will be fully glorified. We're going to see the completion of the glory of God in us. And that, to me, is something to hope for. If we aren't marveling at that majesty of being like Christ, of being in the presence of the Almighty God, I don't know what gets you up in the morning. Because that is the greatest hope beyond all hopes. There's n- I can't think of a hope that's better. Because when that day comes, guess what? There's an infinite number of days like that afterwards. What about birthdays? Let's go back to our... When that Tony Roma's barbecue ribs dinner ended, guess what? I didn't get another 10th birthday. My grandma said, "Mm, I I don't think we're going to take you on your 11th or your 12th. It was over. The hope was done. The, The waiting, it brought delight for a moment. But that's the difference. All the things that this world offers, all the physical things, are so light in comparison. Because, just think about it, sports. I'm going to use a sports analogy. Every year when somebody wins a national championship, whether it's the Super Bowl, basketball, whatever, name the sport. The, the people say, oh, I've been waiting my whole life to win a Super Bowl. I've been waiting a whole year to win a Super Bowl if you're the Patriots and you cheat a lot. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's personal opinion, not from the Lord. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment. And what, what are they talking about the next day? Next year. Next year. And eventually those guys, those athletes, their bodies can't take the physical toll anymore. And they have to stop playing the sport that they have spent their entire lives playing. And it made me think of the story of Michael Phelps. Everybody knows who Michael Phelps is, I would assume. The greatest swimmer to swim the earth. (laughs) It was a pun anyways. No one laughed. But he was an amazing athlete. I mean... I'm pretty sure that when God made him, he said, you're going to be a great swimmer because he had, he was double-jointed everywhere and so he could just swim like a fish. I mean, he probably preferred to live in the water than on land. But his whole life, a great athlete, and, and what was he? His last Olympics, he was like 26 or something. And he had already achieved goals that people dream about for a lifetime. I think it was like 10 gold medals and one Olympics or something like that. I, I can't remember the numbers. But 
He had achieved all his goals. Guess what? He decided to retire and he had nothing to live for anymore. Because all that he had hoped in, all his efforts had been put forth and he had achieved them all. There wasn't anything else that he could do. He had gotten all the golds possible for his event. And guess what? Not long after that, there were reports of him doing drugs, suicidal thoughts, depression. He's still alive, thank the Lord. He he hasn't died yet, and there's hope for him. But he lost, he had no hope. He had seen the realization of his hope and his efforts. And it had no lasting effect. Yeah, he can walk the streets and people say, oh, you're Michael Phelps. You're the greatest swimmer that has ever swam. And he could say, yeah, yeah. But for him, his hope is over. He's already seen it. He has nothing to live for. But that's the difference. Our hope is eternal. When we experience the majesty of God, when that day comes, guess what? There's another day after it, just like it. Because God is infinite. It will take eternity to get to know our majestic God. And so, when we have a hope that cannot be taken in this life, it makes it easier to understand the second half or the end of Romans chapter 8 when we get to talking about the love of God. Because our hope cannot be taken. They can take our lives, but guess what? We've achieved. We... The moment our lives end in this life, we'll be spending eternity. We'll see our hope at that moment. We're no longer in some kind of a, oh, experience hope and then it's over. No. The hope of God is an infinite hope, a hope that has no end. There's no greater thought that we can think. No greater hope that we can hope. And so I pray that this morning we are encouraged to look to the glory of God that is coming. To think on heaven. To think as heirs of God, as co-heirs with Christ, as His children, that when that day comes, we will spend eternity with Him. Him. And let's be waiting eagerly with hope and perseverance because suffering will happen. And despite how we want to use uh, Romans 8.28, that suffering is for our good. It has a purpose to bring us to Him. And the great thing that we know is the Spirit And Christ are interceding for us. That we do not lose our faith. Remember, Peter, you're going to fall, Peter, but I pray that your faith not fail you. I mean, that's a prayer every one of us wants the Lord to be praying for. That's what I need. I need God to be interceding for me 
Christ interceding that I, my faith does not fail because our, we see people all around us giving up faith in truth. And so I pray that this morning we'll be encouraged to look to heaven. And I've got a song that I really love and it just, it kind of, I feel like it really fits this passage, our message this morning. So I'll pray and then... Um, He's going to put it on the screen, so hopefully if you know the words, please sing. I think it's a really good song to sing together. Father, I just pray that your Spirit would be with us this week. Or get us, give us an earnest, heartfelt desire for heaven and your glory. Increase our eagerness, Lord and waiting for you. Help us to f- see that hope, to have a, a glimpse of your glory and to be drawn to your presence, Father God. Give us perseverance, we pray. Encourage us, Lord, in your word this week. Help us to s- earnestly desire your gifts to flow in our lives and in this church. Pray that we would be Encourage, and as we prepare for next week, Lord, let us get a glimpse of your love for us, the unending love of Christ. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you, Christ, for the life that we live and have, and pray, Lord, our hope would increase. Thank you, Lord, for this. Trust that you'll be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.